This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Daniel Romero Alvarez, an MD and PhD candidate at the University of Kansas. We'll be discussing Mycobacterium leprae found in armadillo tissues in museum collections across the United States. Welcome, Dr. Romero Alvarez. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be in your podcast. So what is Mycobacterium leprae, and is it what causes leprosy? So Mycobacterium leprae is low-growing intracellular bacilli, and yes, it's the etiological agent of leprosy. It's the traditional known etiological agent of leprosy, although the disease is also caused by another agent that is called Mycobacterium lepromatosis that was discovered around 2010 clarify here, is this the same kind of leprosy we associate with the Middle Ages with all the horrific outcomes such as people losing fingers and noses? Yes, we are talking about exactly the same disease. It is important to mention that the clinical spectrum of leprosy is large and goes from mild forms to other clinical forms that are very severe and those are the ones related with the horrific outcomes as you mentioned. And Fortunately, we know now how to treat the disease and avoid those severe outcomes, although they can be seen in some parts of the world. So tell us about this disease generally. Okay, so leprosy is a chronic disease. And as I mentioned, it has a large clinical spectrum. And depending on the way the immunological response is mounted by the patient that is affected by the disease, you can find forms that are apparent like a, a, skin, a skin problem, right? Or you then can have these very disseminated forms that might compromise your nerves and then uh, cause these amputations or even blindness. So the disease has been controlled in some sense, but it is still prevalent. So if it's prevalent, why don't we hear very much about it anymore? And you mentioned something about a treatment. So there is treatment for it now? Previously, the incidence of leprosy was really dramatic. And of course, the, the disease has a very stigmatic and historical context. However, around the 80s, the World Health Organization started a multi-drug treatment strategy coupled with some public health interventions that allowed us to control the disease. The multidrug treatment is based on the three antibiotics, and those antibiotics are very effective on treating a particular case, although it's a long-term treatment. So you have to take those antibiotics for around minimum, minimum six months, so, but they are effective on, on controlling the disease. So in a sense, we were able to keep leprosy at base, you know, like we were able to control it. However, Something that I wanted to bring to the table was a, a kind of a tricky strategy that was also established by the World Health Organization. So in the 2000s, they decided that a threshold to mention that leprosy is no longer a public health problem could be achieved if you have an incidence of one times 10,000 inhabitants, inhabitants of new cases, right? If you have less than that threshold, then you can say that you have control the disease. So that is why a lot of countries have started achieving that threshold and then mentioning that it is no longer a problem, right? So based on that threshold, you can easily say that the three countries that are concentrated 
concentrating the majority of leprosy burden in the world are Brazil, Indonesia, and India. However, at the country level, that makes sense, but if you zoom in geographical localities that are smaller than countries, then you will see that this control idea has not been achieved in multiple places. Just out of curiosity, what are the three antibiotics that are used for treatment? Interesting question. So the three antibiotics are rifampicin, dapsone, and then you have to pick cephalosporin, third-generation cephalosporin. Do we know how it's transmitted? Is it person-to-person or zoonotic, or how's it done? That question is the reason why I started to study leprosy uh, disease system, because we might believe that uh, because it's an ancient disease, right? We know leprosy since, uh, since very, very old times. Then the mechanisms of transmission will be completely clear for us. But that is not the case. So we don't know, although we traditionally understand that leprosy is a person-to-person transmitted disease, we are not sure how that is happening, right? In the traditional understanding of leprosy transmission, we believe that because mycobacterium leprae the bacteria has been found in the, in the nose of infected patients, then by coughing and sneezing, they are releasing infected droplets and aerosols that are driving the transmission. However, we can never be able to actually see how that is happening, right? How that transmission event is occurring. The only clear risk factor for someone to acquire leprosy is to be chronically in touch with the source of leprosy. So that is why household residents of uninfected patients are usually in more risk of acquiring the disease. But then what is happening when uh, patients are showing to be positive for leprosy without any other human that with another patient that transmitted the disease in the first place, right? So that is why uh, recent studies have shown that potentially uh, there are other reservoirs of leprosy, including other mammals and also the environment. So potentially being exposed to those other mammals or to those other sources are also a condition for getting leprosy. Your studies about leprosy in armadillo museum specimens, you found these bacilli in armadillo museum specimens. Particularly, why were you looking for them? As I mentioned, because it is not clear if there is a zoonotic pathway that allows leprosy to move from wildlife to patients, then around the 70s, 80s in the United States, the nine-banded armadillo started to be seen as a reservoir of mycobacterium leprae. And there is this pioneer study that was published on the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011, where they found that there was a clear link between the nine-banded armadillo and patients infected with leprosy. They found the same strain of mycobacterium leprae in both populations, right, armadillo and persons. So there is this understanding that armadillo, the nine-banded armadillo, which the species name is the Cipus nomenclinus, is a well-known reservoir of the disease. So we decided to study museum specimens to see whether we can find mycobacterium leprae on those armadillos, on those species, and we were able to do so. In which museums did you find your armadillos? At the end, it is important to mention that there is a super interesting, a super good network of information of specimens that are available 
in the different museums of the U.S. So by assessing this information network, we were able to find multiple specimens scattered around 10 museums of the U.S. And from those 10 museums, we found positive armadillos in the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History in Connecticut, the Museum of the North from the University of Alaska, the Museum of Southern Biology from the University of New Mexico, and the Texas Tech University Natural Science Research Laboratory. What countries were the specimens from? Just because they were in that museum didn't mean they were from this country. What countries were they from? The specimens came from multiple countries, at least eight countries. The majority of our samples were collected in the U.S., of course, but we also obtained samples from Paraguay, Argentina, Bolivia, Peru, Brazil, Panama, and Costa Rica. Were you looking at a particular kind of armadillo? And actually, are there different kinds? Yeah, there are at least 20 species of armadillos, but they are mostly concentrated in South America. From the 20 species, the one species that is broader distributed is the nine-banded armadillo. So this particular animal lives from Argentina to the mid-US, like let's say up to Kansas. So it has a super, super large area of distribution. And it is a very successful species, right, that can adapt to multiple environments and to multiple ecosystems. So we were looking to this particular armadillo, although there is published literature showing that at least two species can be considered as reservoirs of Mycobacterium leprae, the nine-banded armadillo, the Cipus domensinctus, and also the six-banded armadillo, which is Eufractus sexinctus, the species name. And because there was this information about two species being reservoirs, we decided to obtain specimens from all the Dacipodidae family, so from all the species available, right? So we ended up studying 10 different armadillo species in our research, although we only found positives on the nine-banded armadillo. And how exactly were the specimens chosen? We basically asked for any tissue from the Dacipodidae family that was out there. So after looking into these databases, we found the presence of different armadillos on these 10 museums, and then we asked them for a loan, like, hey, we are doing this research. We would like to see if Mycobacterium leprae is present in the tissues of your collection. Would you like to contribute? So they say, like, yeah, <laughs> of course. And so then they send us some tissue to analyze. It was more on availability rather than a particular case. And once you had them, how were they tested? So once we received the portion of tissue, then we use molecular techniques to diagnose Mycobacterium leprae, its presence of that tissue. We first extract DNA and then use at least two approaches based on polymerase chain reaction PCR, which is this method that amplifies DNA largely, and then use a specific targets to detect the presence of both Mycobacterium leprae and we were also looking for Mycobacterium lepromatosis in these samples, although we never found that other species. What kinds of samples were the bacilli found in? I mean, were this in body parts or was it in types of preservatives? Where exactly did you find it? Because we were only looking for, we were very broad in our inclusion criteria on how to test. Our aim was to address any armadillo species rather to any particular tissue. 
there were some reports mentioning that the places uh, where Mycobacterium leprae would be in higher concentrations in armadillos will be the liver and the spleen. But these organs are not necessarily collected in the specimens that are held on museums. So we were super broad, right? Just asking for tissue. So at the end, we received a lot of liver, muscle, spleen, heart, kidney, and we um, used our molecular detection techniques across all those tissues. Something that was surprising is that we found a lot of positives in the muscle tissue. That was unexpected because we were aiming to find a lot of microcellular prey in either the liver or the spleen, but muscle resulted to be a good tissue to, found the, to find the bacteria, at least in our sample. What percentage of the samples had the bacilli? We ended analyzing 159 individual armadillos from 10 different species. From those, 122 belong to the nine-banded armadillo, and we only found positives there. So we found 18 positives out of 122, which gave us a prevalence of 14.8% of mycobacterium leprae in our sample. Are there different subtypes of this bacilli? Yeah, so regarding subtypes, it is important to mention some background. So around 2010, there was a very interesting study published that compared genomes of Mycobacterium leprae that were collected across the entire world. Through this study, the scientific world concluded that Mycobacterium leprae is one of the pathogens with the lowest mutation rate ever. So they are, these 200 samples, right, around 200 samples were super similar, right? They, they were not different. And because they are so similar, any mutation is able to characterize a particular Mycobacterium leprae with a particular geographical location. These mutations are called single nucleotide polymorphism or SNPs. So based on these needs, in 2010, the researchers developed this categorization system that allows you to classify Mycobacterium leprae in four types, one, two, three, four, and also 16 subtypes labeled according to letter in the alphabet. So you have subtypes 1A, 1B, 1D, 2A, 2B, etc. Using this subtypification method, and since 2010 until, until now, there have been another subtypes that have been detected. So now we accept more than 16 subtypes, but traditionally we only mentioned 16 subtypes. So yeah, there are a lot of subtypes. Was the one found in the United States different than the ones found in other countries or samples from other countries? So to answer this question, it's important to notice something because this subtypification system is based on very specific mutations that are found in the genome. Whenever you are trying to characterize a Mycobacterium leprae strain at the subtypification level, you need a good quantity of DNA. And that was usually not the case when we were extracting DNA from these museum specimens. So from the 18 positives that we found in our study, we were able to to actually characterize subtype, so mycobacterium leprae at the subtype level, on only five specimens. And from those five, we were able to actually see exactly what was the strain in only two. And those 
two, sorry, on four. And from those four, all belong to the subtype 3i, which was the subtype expected for the U.S. and for North America. You mentioned the area that these infected armadillos roam around in is pretty extensive in the U.S. Where exactly can we find them? Armadillos with Mycobacterium leprae has been detected across the majority of the southern states of the United States. So they have been found in Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Arkansas, and there is an interesting report in Oklahoma as well. What are the public health considerations of what you found? I can say at least three public health implications of our study. The third one is that one of our positive armadillo detections came from a sample collected in 1996. This sample is Mycobacterium leprae of subtype 3i. And that is interesting because the subtypification strategy was developed in 2010, around 2010, right? So we only knew about the circulation of the subtype 3i starting this date. However, our study showed that the subtype 3i has been circulating in the area, right, in southern United States around since the 90s, which is super interesting, right, and, and suggests that monitoring should be encouraged. The second public health implication is that from our 18 positive samples, 16 came from the U.S., but two positive samples were found in armadillos collected in Bolivia and in Paraguay, and these are the first identifications of Mycobacterium leprae on those South American countries. So by confirming the presence of the bacteria on these armadillos, we are suggesting that these armadillos might function, right, as um, zoonotic sources of leprosy on both countries. And of course, both countries have shown people infected with leprosy, right? Uh, traditionally, we believe that those persons get the disease from other persons, but the zoonotic source must be included in surveillance research to see if those are acting as the zoonotic sources of the disease. And the third public health implication of our work is that uh, museums should be seen as biorepositories for infectious disease surveillance, because they are hosting a lot of biological information that should be leveraged in order to understand infectious disease dynamics, right? Here we are showing the case, this interesting case with the 1996 identification of Mycobacterium leprae in the United States, and also the positive identifications in Paraguay and Bolivia. All of this information came from museum specimens. <clears throat> And then we should actually uh, start watching these institutions and these kind of early detection alarms, right, that will help us to anticipate outbreaks. Going back to transmission, can a person, do you think, get leprosy from contact with an armadillo? I see all these reels on Facebook and Instagram of people having these pet armadillos, and it worries me. Yeah, and that is kind of the most direct question, right? And the most direct implication considering leprosy as a zoonotic disease. And the answer is that we still don't know that. As I mentioned, the person-to-person -person transmission is kind of not completely understood. And of course, the armadillo-to-person transmission and also the person-to-armadillo transmission is completely hindered. There is the possibility that 
contact with the armadillo is the starting point of the bacteria moving from one species to the other. However, we don't know if handling the armadillo is the culprit. We don't know if, like, being around the fluids of armadillo is the transmission route. We don't know if eating the armadillo is the way to get infected. So more research is needed to understand that connection. Well, on that note, what kinds of future studies do you think are needed? What needs to be investigated particularly? I can mention three particular topics that need further research on this area. The first one, as you correctly mentioned, as I was mentioning, is that like shed more light on how the pathogen is actually transmitted. Now it is accepted that leprosy can be a zoonosis in the United States and also in Brazil. However, if you go and review the recent reports of the World Health Organization, they are barely considering the zoonotic route as a clear transmission pathway to acquire leprosy, right? And in this matter, it is also important to mention that Mycobacterium leprae has also been found in the environment, right? In soil samples in, and also in water samples, both in India and in Brazil. So there is a source of leprosy contamination that goes beyond humans, and this is not well known, and this is not well, and, and people is not aware about this route of infection. So it is super important to be aware of that, and also to understand how this is happening. Right, the only clear condition that allows a transmission event involving leprosy is the chronic exposure to the source. So we need more information regarding how that chronic exposure transforms an exposure into a clinical case. And that is one of the most kind of important research to be completed. Another area of a study that should be encouraged is to actually understand how much of leprosy is caused by this new pathogen that was found in 2010, Mycobacterium lepromatosis. So in our study, we were aware that our sample should be tested for both Mycobacterium leprae and Mycobacterium lepromatosis. However, almost nobody is aware of the presence of Mycobacterium lepromatosis as an agent causing leprosy. So to actually understand how these bacteria, what is the role of these bacteria in the global incidence of human leprosy or wildlife leprosy in the world is also another very important piece of research that should be completed and more awareness is granted because if you are not aware that there is this another pathogen causing leprosy, then of course you are not going to test for it. And the current methods of leprosy detection are based on only detecting if leprosy is present or not. So they are not concerned or trying to understand, yeah, of course, this patient has leprosy. Which one, right? Mycobacterium leprae or Mycobacterium lepromatosis? If they have Mycobacterium leprae, current methods are also not interested on understanding which Mycobacterium leprae. As I mentioned, there are these 16 or more subtypes of Mycobacterium leprae, and it is important to understand which ones are causing the disease. And precisely on this line of thought, the third recommendation that on, on future studies that should be done is that by understanding which subtypes are circulating around, um, we might be able to actually obtain, recover 
genomes of mycobacterium leprae, and we need those genomes for areas that have not been studied yet. Specifically, South America, there are very few genomes contributing to the worldwide picture of mycobacterium leprae. The majority of them are coming from Brazil, but there, there is no information from Colombia, from Peru, from Ecuador. Um, we also need more mycobacterium leprae genomes from West Africa and also from Eastern Asia, from China, Japan. That will allow, allow us to complete the understanding of the worldwide distribution of mycobacterium leprae. Going back to museum specimens, this is the third podcast I've done on pathogens and museum specimens um, based on EID articles. Is this a growing trend in research? So I had the opportunity to listen both of those episodes. I like them a lot. <laughs> but something interesting about those two episodes is that they are concerned on the fungi in the snakes. And it was curious because the researchers on those episodes were mentioning that it is a common practice to do this. And yes, potentially it is a common practice from a veterinary perspective, from a biological perspective, but from a clinical perspective, right? And it is not as common. And actually, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a super interesting report that was published on science uh, mentioning that we should develop an infrastructure to monitor wildlife diseases before they jump into humans, right? Being aware that zoonotic, I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, taken the discourse about zoonosis to the public understanding, right? Because the pandemic affects us all. And it's curious because in this science piece, they were mentioning that we need this infrastructure. And then there was a response to that science piece mentioning that, hey, we have that infrastructure. We don't need to create a new one. That infrastructure is based on biorepositories represented by natural history museums. That response was done by Jocelyn Colella, which is a professor in Kansas University that has been promoting infectious disease research for quite a time now. And so I believe the trend is going to continue. More studies are going to be developed addressing the presence of pathogens in museum specimens with the intention of anticipated outbreaks and also with the intention of understanding infectious disease dynamics on wildlife, which is super important. But yeah, I wanted to mention that for in, from the clinical world, from the world of people, it's not common to actually look for pathogens of museum specimens. Well, tell us about your job, what you do, and your particular areas of interest, and how you became involved in this particular study. So I'm a medical doctor. I obtained my degree in Ecuador. And after working as a clinician, I realized that the clinical world is some kind limited in the understanding of how actually infectious diseases enter into a population. And that is because clinicians are uh, focused on treating or on curing a particular infectious disease, not on understanding its dynamics. So that is why I kind of changed fields and I started this PhD on disease ecology to being able to understand the origin of pathogens, right? To try to answer the question, where are they coming from? Specifically, although this work involves the diagnosis of leprosy in armadillo populations, I am also concerned on the distributional ecology of other pathogens. So I have been able to work with the presence of 
anthrax in Africa and also with the presence of melioidosis in the U.S. And I am super interested on understanding patterns of infectious disease distribution and which are the conditions, the environmental conditions that determine the jump of a pathogen from one species to another and how that event can become an epidemic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your important work to talk with me today, Dr. Romero Alvarez. No, thank you very much for the interview, and I have a great time in this podcast. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the March 2023 article, Mycobacterium leprae in Armadillo Tissues from Museum Collections, United States, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.